0: This is Live from the Table, the official podcast of New York's world-famous Comedy seller coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Dog. And on the Laugh Button Podcast Network, Dan Natterman here. Noam has the night off. Actually, we're recording on a Monday because Wednesday is the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur, so uh, Noam, uh, on Mondays, Noam plays music with his band, so he couldn't be with us. But that's okay because we have a guest host with us. We have John Fish, everybody. John good to be back. Good to be back. Good to be John back. John Fish was here recently. He is a comedy seller regular and, um, and uh, an all-around good guy. Periel Ashenbrand is with us. Periel wearing her mask because she is being extra cautious because she has an unvaccinated kid at home. She is wearing a K-95 mask tonight. Al Lubel joins us, the great Al Lubel, a legend. He joins us all the way via Zoom. Where are you, Al? Uh, I am in
1: Los Angeles.
0: He joins us from the city of angels, Los Angeles, California. Alu Bell has a documentary out on uh, YouTube. For a mere $3.99, you can rent this documentary. It is a lot of entertainment for the money. It is called Mentally Al An Intimate Portrait of Cult Comedy Legend Alu Bell. Alu Bell won Star Search in 1988, a $100,000 grand prize, which, by the way, in 1988 was you know, probably like 300000 today um he is a, a former lawyer turned comedian uh he has won several prizes at the edinburgh uh comedy f- edinburgh it's a comedy festival it's a, what's it called the uh the uh, edinburgh, edinburgh Fring-
1: fringe festival. the fringe festival, festival. which edinburgh. brings
0: together comedians and and one person show artists and everything. anyway he's performed there and done quite well alu bell is here with us to talk about his new documentary hello al it's been a while
1: I know it's been a while. One question before I forget. thank you. It was very flattering to say it's a lot of the documentary is a lot of entertainment for 3.99. Yes. Right. How much would it have to cost hmm. to make it just barely enough entertainment?
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um well, it also depends on your on your I mean, were I a billionaire, I might say a $1000 would be you know, wouldn't 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 um really set me back at all. But in my, in my income level, I would say if it were 20 bucks, I probably, uh, I would have just watched the trailer for free and pretend that I saw it.
1: <laughs> uh, oh, right, but, but let's say you actually did see it and paid the 20 bucks. Would you think it was the entertainment at your income status, would that have been a good deal to see this documentary for 20 bucks considering the amount of money you have?
0: Well, it would have been it would have been good for me because I know you personally. Now, also, but I, I don't know if I could recommend it to the average person.
2: Cuz when Dan and I were talking about it, I think we ran into each other last night. You said that you laughed more than you Yeah, I you laughed don't out laugh. loud
0: more than I would at your average I don't know, you know, a comedy film or you know, the average thing that I watch that's supposed to be funny, I'd laugh more at your thing.
1: You know, t- you think it might be because you already know me.
0: Uh, p- partially, it's hard to it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, imagine if I didn't know you what it would be. But but, you know, I mean, you're a funny guy and um, it's a funny documentary, but also a poignant documentary. It's basically the subtitle of the documentary is the funniest comedian you've never heard of. Right. That's that's sort of the sub. That's how they right. pitch it. The funniest comedian you've never heard of.
1: And what kind of annoys me about that a little is like one of these problems, like I, nothing's ever enough for me. Like, so I want to somehow remove, get rid of the first letter and never and have it you've ever heard of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that, that, you know, it's going to take me a while to get a documentary about me that says that
0: <laughs> so you'll have to settle for, you've never heard of because Al you're you're back on. I mean, I saw the documentary. I saw myself in the documentary. It's about a guy that the comics, respect or you know they all said, say good things about but it never really hit it big that's sort of the that's the idea behind the documentary is this guy you know like sarah silverman and god apatow were seen on the documentary saying yeah Al's great we love him you know but he just never he never popped that's sort of the that's sort of the um the idea behind well
1: it. i learned in therapy i i also suffer from the fear
2: of popping all right. <laughs> al did you watch it in full um uh, after it came out
1: uh yeah, I watched it in full before it came out too okay. in fact that's all
2: I do is watch it <laughs> I'm curious what your reaction is to it now watching it uh, now removed
1: yeah it's uh well, I feel like a little di- it was recorded five years ago like right. he started following me around in 2016 so I do feel a little uh, different from then. I do feel bad how angry I got on my mother, like, in a car ride towards... Uh, did you get to see it? Yeah, yeah I saw I it. I saw it, yeah. I, mean,
0: I told that, you, because, I mean, I obviously saw it, I said it was for the money, it was good value.
1: Nothing. I was talking to John, I didn't know if oh, John said. Yes,
0: and he agrees yeah. with me, by the way, for the money, it's good value. <laughs> oh,
1: thank you, and I, I forgot your name, the, uh Ariel. Sorry. Did you get to see Ariel. it?
3: Or? I watched part of it, I didn't finish it yet, but I've heard okay. um, really great things about it.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Here's something I feel kind of bad about, like, in on the ride to visit my mother in the thing. Uh, I start talking about how she was a really bad mother and uh, she would have failed parenting class. And I was just in a bad mood. I was totally broke. I was hungry. I was, you know, and uh, I was honest. <laughs> yeah, so you're
0: not saying you don't feel that way. You're just saying you shouldn't have said it.
1: Well, yeah, right. I felt that way. But, you know, there's also a part of me that definitely loves my mother. And so, like, I was just angry you know like i think when you're really angry at where you are in your own life at least for me i get angry at my, yeah it's a joke in my act like uh i can't remember what it is now but uh when think yeah my joke is when things go really really good for me i really really love myself but when things go really really bad for me i really really hate my mother
2: <laughs> well, I think the love does come across i, I feel also throughout so if oh, you're you. worried that it's uh yeah you I think as someone that's watching it, you know that that's, um, you know, probably something like you said, maybe he's a little grumpy and hungry or something.
0: I, 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 saw, I as I said, I saw a lot of myself because I feel like you and I are very similar in terms of, you know, respect from our peers, but not necessarily raging success. And I wondered, your, your documentary is called Mentally Al. I wonder if there's going to be a Dan and Out
2: documentary <laughs> about me uh, at some point. <laughs>
1: Very funny. Thank
0: you.
2: But but, but. <laughs> also the lawyer comparison. That's and I'm also, how I found I'm out I'm also about a,
0: it. an ex-lawyer. Yeah. A
2: comedian, right, uh, ex-lawyer, and ex-law uh, um, professor told me about now, it when we were coming up with stuff. Uh, well, Liz Gleeser. Yeah. I
1: think I want to show off my memory. Dan, I believe you went uh, your first year. It was at Fordham
0: Law Yeah, that's where I went for three years. Actually, I never practiced law, but I was at Fordham when I started doing comedy. And oh. I never actually practiced. Did you actually take the bar exam? I took the bar, passed it, like most people do, and right. and just just started temping right after that, because I didn't want to have a career because I wanted to be a
1: comic.
2: That makes um, sense. I realized,
1: John, you, you were a teacher.
2: No, I worked with kids on a psych psych ward uh, beforehand. But Jesus no, I was Christ, never you yeah, did? yeah, I did. Jesus Christ was there a couple <laughs> <of> times.
0: Actually, <laughs> uh, Al, one w- one thing that struck me is. Um, in the documentary, Sarah Silverman says, the comics all love him, and every comic knows he's funny, but the powers that be never got behind him or something like that, right? Right. And I said to myself, yeah, but aren't the powers that be, aren't you the powers that be? You know, I mean, like, like a lot of comics
1: are the powers that be. So. Oh, well, Sarah's done things for me. She's gotten me in places. I can't, off the top of my, because I'm fasting right now, by the way. Can you tell I'm
2: fasting? No. No, no, <laughs> but we tell you're mad at your mom.
1: <laughs> do you guys know about this whole intermittent fasting thing? Yes, yes, we do. Do you
0: do yeah. it? But, but, but I would, well, I, I have done it, but I, I don't want to, I, I do want to
1: stick to- well, Let me just uh, say my put. brain is not, maybe my memory, because I fasted now for 20 hours, but right. I was afraid to eat right before the podcast because then I get weak from digestion. Right. You know what I'm saying, right. the blood goes to digestion. So I'm okay mentally, but I'm trying to think, Sarah has gotten me gigs before. I mean, she's done things. I mean, and just the fact that she has been in the documentary, my God had tweeted about it. And uh, Judd has tweeted about it and been in it. And, uh, you know, these people, you know, Kevin and Ann, they've done things for me.
0: I mean, if it were me, if I were in that, I would just cut you a check. (laughs) Now, uh, (laughs) would you, but the question is, would you accept, like I saw that, I saw that, that scene where you were in the driving a lift which is honest work right you know but if i was in that income bracket i i'd probably just say you know what, here's 100k the question is is would you take it or would you be too proud
1: no i would feel too guilty to take it uh well not guilty but i would feel like it would make me lazy you know it just give in to whatever i had. i remember when i was when I was 24 years old i remember getting the thought i need a major trauma to hit me because uh, I won't do anything unless I'm in a traumatic state. I won't do anything unless I'm terrified, You know, I, and like uh, if it's too easy for me, I just won't do anything until it gets tough. You know, so someone giving me a hundred thousand would just be really prolonging my suffering to when the suffering has to happen. Because I don't think they'll give me the second hundred grand.
0: <laughs> yeah, probably not. If you burn through the first hundred grand and you were just, <laughs> just hanging out all day by the pool. <laughs> But right. uh, but you don't seem that like, you know, the documentary uh, talks a lot about the fact that, OK, he never made it big, quote, unquote, uh, you were on, you know, uh, assistance f- at, at some p- one point in your life, uh, public assistance. Um,
1: and also, even before that, I was on private
0: assistance. <laughs> My mother. Yeah. But but you see you have a great sense of humor about it. I never there were a few moments in the documentary where you just seem a little bit angry, but in general, you didn't seem upset by it. You're like, you didn't seem terribly
1: unhappy. That's a very good observation on your point. I mean, do you uh, think that's point? accurate? But yeah, it's, yeah. you know what? Because I really, th- I mean, I think some it can sound like an excuse, but I really mean it when I say half of me, at least, doesn't want to be successful. Like, I'm ambivalent about it. And I never knew what the word ambivalent really meant until I looked it up about 10 years ago. I always heard the word and I thought I kind of, it means strong feelings on both sides. It doesn't, you know, and so I have a really strong feeling of not wanting to grow up. I'm terrified of it because to me, growing up means I'm on the way to death. If I don't grow up, if I don't hit adulthood, I never hit deadhood. To me, it's childhood, adulthood, deadhood. Now, I granted, you can go childhood to deadhood, mm-hmm. but, you know, I don't think like that. I think I'm going to get adulthood in there, you know, so I figure if I postpone adulthood, I don't hit deadhood. And I know I, that's why I never want to grow up because more than anything, I'm terrified about death. That's the biggest thing for me. So half of me is thrilled I'm not successful because I qu- equate success with the step—the next step towards death. So that's why in the documentary, I'm not all that upset where I am because there's a huge part of me that doesn't want success because I'm scared of it. Okay.
3: But
0: you also said you don't want success because in the documentary because you don't think you deserve it.
1: Right. There's another part of me, too. Yeah, I think low self-esteem, just from being such a brat, like... uh, And again, I blame my mother for this, really. But uh, she so spoiled me. And I was such a brat, an angry... You're an animal. You're a brat. She'd scream, you know, and she'd curse at me, too. I don't want to curse on this podcast. But she did not that much. She cursed, but she would curse. Anyway, my point is that I think I got low self-esteem from being such a brat. Because you don't really get away with that. You know, like, you know, your mother... I had low self-esteem, I, got a, I was a king at home, but I paid a penalty for being the king because I had low self-esteem. Because you get a little self-esteem when you take out the garbage. You, know, you take out the garbage, you make your bed, you get a little self-esteem. I never had to make my bed, I never took out the garbage. So I never had that pumped up self-esteem of like, wow, I just did that, I took out the garbage. I never took out the garbage, so I never had self-esteem. Only self-esteem I had was your mother tell, my mother telling me, you're the greatest, you're the best. So in my mind, somewhere I had, I'm the best. But in my mind, I also had low self esteem for things to brat and an animal and a tyrant. A tyrant, I forced my mother to serve me food in bed. You know, I'd be lying in bed and she'd bring in the tuna fish sandwich to me while I'm lying in bed. You know, so I had low self esteem. I didn't know I had low self esteem back then. But when I grew up, I, got, I had it in me. And you know, so you- well, there's a part of me doesn't feel how can a guy that was a tyrant and demanded his mother serve him food in bed and demanded she change my TV channel for me? How can a guy like that really feel he deserves to be a star? But how old? How old a, were you? I don't even you... know if I deserve to be a human.
2: Well, ironically, that's what stars do now.
1: <laughs> no, I know, and exactly, I already did it.
2: Bring me the tuna. So,
1: I know. I don't. I already did it, so I almost feel guilty for having done it. Uh-huh. So I don't even want to do it now.
3: But how old were you when you were demanding those things? I mean, you were a child, right?
1: No, I think until seventeen.
3: Okay, but my mother
1: was old. serving me food in bed and changing the TV channel for me. And again, I'm not quite sure about this because uh, the mem- my memory is not that clear about it. But I remember lying in bed watching the Watergate hearings, you know, at 17. And, uh, you know, I'm not so sure. I-, I don't know. I just never had to do anything. You know, there was no family dinner. You know, my father worked nights. I once tried to get him to like, he was off Wednesday and Thursday. So I demanded, I was always afraid to demand anything to my father. Weren't that, we occasionally like catch with me but my mother was my slave my father really wasn't my slave
0: by the way just doing some quick calculations you said you were 17 and Watergate uh you look great. Yeah, I, was
1: afraid, I was afraid you were gonna do that
0: well I'm not I'm not gonna I mean a very rough calculation of how old you are but you look fantastic <laughs> Ma- maybe there's something to this not growing up because you look really really good I mean I would have thought you were maybe just a few years older than I am I uh, think but but you're about you' you're, you're about 14 years older than I am.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know. Oh. Well, thank you. I mean, I think uh, I don't know. I mean, I yeah, guess some I of it's genetic and <laughs> some of it's uh, the fear of growing up, maybe, and well, some of it's back and...
2: How's the hip? That's a follow up from the documentary. Your hip was injured. During... Same thing. I'm afraid well, it's
1: not, it's
0: not of... injured. It's got a, he's got a genetic condition.
1: Well, it's, well, it's both. It, well, yeah, it's you know, I have a thing called hip dysplasia. Have you heard of that? Mm-hmm. Dogs are known for it, especially like, you know, badly formed. But humans have it, too. But anyway, my point is they're badly formed hips from birth. And I was warned when I got into my 50s, I'm probably going to need hip replacement because I never limped. As you know, you saw me in New York. I never limped. I used to play basketball. And, but I went bone on bone in my right hip 10 years ago. But the weird thing about it is I'm not in pain. Like most everybody, bone on bone is in pain. And they t- I'm on no medication. I limp because of the bone on bone. But again, it's my fear of death. I'm afraid of hip replacement. Because even though I know it's a very safe surgery, they're fantastic at it, blah, 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 blah. I'm afraid I'm going to be the one guy that dies, you know? And so I'm afraid to get major surgery. That's the childish part of me, you know? Mm -hmm. But I do yoga every morning. I do certain yoga that really for an hour called the Agoscu method, a thing, you know, that they designed. And it helps me walk a lot better than I used to walk. And I'm trying to, if I can do it every day and at night I'm supposed to do another two hours of a certain thing with them, if I could put together two weeks in a row, I really, every day, morning and night, I want to see how good I can get because I notice real improvements even when I do three days in a row of the morning and night at it. So I want to try to be the guy that breaks the rule and doesn't need hip replacement.
0: Al, um, so um, wh- where, are, where are things at now with the documentary? Are you are you making money? Are you, is it, is it, is it, is it successful or it just came out? So are you, I guess we don't necessarily know uh, but, but do you have a sense of, 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 uh, how it's going in terms of viewership? I
1: have a sense it's going well. The thing is they've, uh, and again, now I'm being neurotic. I don't know if they want me talking about it this way, but yeah, I'm sure they, they didn't tell me not to. So I, and anyway, my point is that they try to sell it to Netflix and Netflix wasn't interested. They said, well, no one knows this guy, right? Which is kind of ironic, right? Because the documentary, there wouldn't be a documentary if everyone knew me. <laughs> Right, there's right. a whole point of the documentary. Right, right. And so, like, if if everyone knew me and they did a, doc, doc, a, documentary about a documentary about a guy that no one knows, you should argue there should be a documentary about them being so <laughs> idiotic to do that documentary. Remember, <laughs> <laughs> my point is, so, you know, Netflix passed on it. Also, the big festival, like Sundance and uh, what do you call it? South by Southwest, they passed on it, right? So it's been in a lot of, like, good festivals, but smaller than that. Like I'm trying to remember the one in June, it was in Gasparilla, which is a nice festival in Tampa. But anyway, my point is it's been in a lot of, they're trying for three months and also is with Comedy Dynamics, which is a very good company that picked it up. Mm -hmm. So they've put it on all these platforms, like you said, on like Amazon and YouTube where you could buy it. So they're trying, I believe the plan is to try to get enough interest in the next three months. On these platforms to then go to netflix and show, say to them hey look at the interest it's having so there's really no way of knowing i think for like two three months how much interest it does have well there's what are you no hoping to get get it from it. i mean
0: apropos of what we were saying about your fear of success i mean do you do you find yourself fantasizing about where this could lead or are you are you afraid of where
1: this could lead uh, where, where do you want it to lead if anywhere well, as we all know, we have a left hemisphere and a right hemisphere So, I, of the brain. So I think my hemisphere is a torn on this. Uh, no, I don't know. I mean, part of me is like happy for it. And part of me is scared of it. And, you know, Rich Scheidner made a really good point. You know, Rich Scheidner, a very funny comic. He's doing actually a thing called The History of Stand-Up Comedy. He has a short a tour. But anyway, my point is he made some comment today on Facebook, uh, out, something about like, you know, you've avoided acceptance as a comedian for so long. And now that you're going to, it seems like you're closer to acceptance. This might be a problem for you or something. And I wrote insightful yet painful. or something like that, because what I can't remember the, but I found it insightful and painful. Yeah. I'm torn, you know, like, uh, part of me is like actually happy. I think for this to be successful. You know why? Because I've always been like a last minute kind of guy. Like I, I never did anything until maybe you all can relate to this too, until like the exam was coming up. I never studied until the exam was coming up. And I feel like the exam in life is coming up because I'm getting to the end of life. And so now I'm more happy with success because I realize I'm at the end. So uh, I'm getting close to the end, you know, so I'm more happy for it to answer your question.
0: But what about when you won Star Search in 1988? That was a real moment of success. You won $100,000 in 1988, which like I said, is probably 300,000 today. And so that, and you were a young guy and in 1988 is 30. How, I mean, 30, I was
1: 31 like, at the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You were, that's pretty young. And um, so you had real success. So how did that, what effect did that have on you at that time?
1: I remember thinking, I have to 40 now to become a success. I remember thinking, I gave myself nine years. And then each decade, I give myself another nine.
0: But you had success. I mean, wouldn't you qualify that as success to win the uh, Star Search $100,000 prize? at still a reasonably young age of 31. Um,
1: Right, that was successful. But you know, honestly, and not to knock Star Search, I mean, I was glad to do Star Search, but I felt I was always afraid of success, right? And the thing I liked about Star Search was you only had two minutes on the show to do your thing. And so I felt that's a good way to break into doing television. I don't have to worry about six minutes on The Tonight Show. I just have two minutes. And when I first did Star Search, I didn't think I'd necessarily get past the first round because I remember the name of the comic, Frankie Pace, a New York comic. Like he had won the previous round or something or one or two. He was the favorite, I felt, because he had a very strong visual act. You know, I think some props and like for two minutes, it's better maybe to have visual, you know. I didn't expect to win. So I didn't feel pressure. You know, I, I liked being the underdog. And so then I did win. And then I didn't think I'd necessarily win the next one. And actually, and then I started winning. I actually liked it in winning because I'm a fearful person. But if you introduce me to something that I might be afraid of, but then I like it, then I want to keep doing it. So then I wanted to keep winning. Right. And so I ended up winning. But then I wasn't that afraid of winning. Why? Because it wasn't network TV. It wasn't Tonight, you know, it was still syndicated television. I was less afraid of it. No offense against Star Search, but it was like, to me, a little more practice television. It wasn't like Johnny Carson, which did scare me. I did that three years later, and that really scared me because that was a guy I grew up watching, and that was network television, and that was...
2: And that can be considered success. Did you consider that success?
1: Yes, but I was scared. I mean, I was scared of it. That was success, but then again, Johnny was retiring. So I was a little, maybe less terrified. Like if Johnny was staying, maybe I'd be more scared. Oh my God, what can that lead to? But then it luckily led to Leno. Leno watched it and got in touch with me and said, I really liked your spot on the tonight show. And then I did like six Lenos and and then I did five Letterman's but I was scared all the way. I was scared all the way, but the more I did things the less scared I got.
0: You know, it's interesting you bring up the fear of success because I just wrote a novel. Uh, called Ira Spiro Before COVID, which is available on Amazon. And uh, Say that again. I what? What's it Ira Spiro Before COVID. Ira Spiro? Huh? Yeah, Spiro. That's the name of the novel. Ira Spiro Before COVID.
1: And what does Ira Spiro mean? That's
0: a guy's name. Uh, how do you spell it? I R A Ira Spiro. S oh, P I R O. Ira Spiro Before COVID. That's the name of the novel. But the, okay, the okay. main character, the whole theme of the. Of the book is a guy with a fear of success, so that's at least a major
1: theme. Now yeah. I have another fear. You've stolen from me.
0: Well, no, You've I mean after me, haven't you? Which, well, fear of success is a is a fairly common phenomenon, and I'm not even convinced you have it, by All the right. way. <laughs> but, but you know, but uh, you 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 might think that you have it, but Ira Spiro really does. So okay. it's just interesting that we're talking. When I saw the documentary, I'm like, well, this is like. My book—it's available, as I said, on Amazon. Oh my God! For for uh, $4.99 on Kindle, it's a very good deal. Just like your documentary is a very good deal. Now, if you can only afford one, I say you got to go with the book.
2: But, yeah, but both are
1: excellent. You have the, the gall to charge a buck more for your book than I charge for my documentary.
2: You guys should do a two for one. Well, the book provides
0: you with five hours of entertainment at an average reading pace, maybe six. Your documentary provides an hour and a half of entertainment. So, so but, I don't know. You know.
2: Yeah,
1: you're forgetting that thing. A picture's worth a thousand words. It's so a I have 90,000
0: words. Yeah, you probably, you know, if, if we're going to stick to that formula. <laughs> but a picture's worth a thousand words. A video might be worth well more. Exactly. Uh, so, exactly. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, that's what it costs. And it's also fourteen ninety nine in paperbacks. So, that's an even, still a good deal.
1: And that's excellent. Congratulations, you did that.
0: Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, sales have been a little down this week, so I'm relying on our listeners to, to, uh, to let's get those numbers up. I'm trying to be like, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to be like a shameless, like you know, these these guys that are successful in comedy, they believe in themselves and they and yeah. they think you need to buy my product. I never thought that way, so I'm trying to fake it. Fake Same it, with it, me. It, I it.
1: have a big time self-promoting. You know, it's just like I don't. I try to avoid it. I, I'm insecure.
0: Well, maybe you're not as insecure as you are. saying. There's, there's something insane about about some of these people that that um, that just that, you got to buy. Yeah, we're number. We're going to be number one. Some of these guys, like you know, they have a, an album out or they have a film out. Come on, you got to make us. Not we're going to be number one. They say we like it's like we're right. all in it together. Even right. though he's making all the money. Right. Come right. on, let's get to number one. We can do it, guys. They say to their fans like we can get the number one. It's like who's we? You're getting all the money. Right. But, but that's how people do a lot of, you know, that's like, anyway, um, uh, was I, as I uh, had a question. Oh yeah. So the, the documentary you talk about also about like how your act is, you're not a mainstream act, uh, you know, um, you're very, very unique. And there, there, you seem to be a little bit angry in parts of the, like I said, in the parts of the documentary, you seem, content with things and other parts, you seem a little bit angry and you talk about how, yeah, these guys that you can please everybody, they get ahead and me, I'm a little different and interesting and unique and and that's, you know, half the audience loves me, but half the audience doesn't love me And, and you can't get work like that. You need to please everybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, not every, I mean, there are some comedians that find their own audience and they're not pleasing everybody, but they manage to get enough people to just come to see their show and, They're you know, doing well without pleasing everybody. But I also feel bad, like you know, I'm not I feel bad about that. You know, I'm not attacking uh comedians that please everybody because I think there are comedians who inherently are pleasing, they're they're more nor they're more regular people, and when they express themselves honestly, they are pleasing everybody because they are really more regular humans that are a part of society. I had a twisted, crazy childhood, so I'm a little weirder. But some people didn't have a twisted, crazy childhood. They're, they're people and they express themselves honestly and they please everybody. And I was just in a bad mood that I was struggling there. But I shouldn't be knocking other people that naturally please everybody that they're very healthy, great comedians that do that.
2: And I, I remember uh, going up to uh, Montreal Comedy Works, Jimbo's. Yes. And, you know, and every time oh, I Jimbo loved, there, loved, loved, loved Al. loves Al LaBelle. Um, right? And He was a real champion of you. And so were there more places like that where because you you had mentioned that you had a hard time, you know, getting booked at a lot of places. But were there a few places other than his place that that welcomed you over and over again and gave you a home? No, no.
1: He was one of the few. (laughs) No, you know, actually, I think there were, but it doesn't. Jimbo totally comes to mind as being the guy. And I remember thinking there must be one other, because I remember thinking, oh, there is one other place. (laughs) But I'm trying to remember, but it's pretty rare. Uh, And I think, so no offense to the other people that have been very supportive, because I know there have been a couple, a few others that have, but I remember thinking, you know, why was it Jimbo? I think, you know, actually he's not totally Canadian. I think he's also born maybe right just below Canada or something, but. But there's something about Canadian audiences I always did a little better with, because I think Canadian audiences had a have a better attention span mm-hmm. in general. Uh, even if they don't like you, they will politely not even I don't even think they're trying to be polite, but they won't talk during your act so much. They just will express their lack of liking you by not laughing. But too often in America, if they don't like you, they will not only not laugh, they will talk to their neighbor and ruin the rest of your act, or they'll heckle you. I'd almost rather the heckle, at least there's interaction. Mm -hmm. But most of the time in America a lot, uh, they'll start talking to each other. And so what they're doing is passively, aggressively, either they're being ignorant, they don't realize how much they're hurting my act because I need people to listen to me before they'll laugh. And by them talking, they're distracting other people from listening, right? So they're either purposely doing it or not realizing they're doing it. And so I have bigger problems in America, because as you guys know, as comics, all you need is one person talking loud in the audience and they ruin your act unless you're a loud comic that's screaming over them. They completely one person could destroy you. You know, we're in Canada It's less likely and even less likely in Canada is why I moved to England. I don't know if you guys know for four yeah, years. I know I you were in England for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Before you even there, they're even more or less likely to ruin your act. They just won't laugh. They may not. Laugh. They have a better attention span, I think, than even Canada. And uh, in general, they won't. Maybe they'll heckle you, which is a good thing, but in general, they'll, you know, they'll have a bigger attention span. It's better for a guy like me that needs to explain himself a little more. I hardly ever vote, you know, because I just don't think my vote counts. My vote doesn't count. My friend, my friend, he says to me, what if everyone didn't vote because they felt their vote didn't count? I said, well, then my vote would count. <laughs> Because unfortunately for me, I'm not just very lazy, I am extremely lazy, extremely. For example, I was in a department store, right? And they had a big sale going on, and they had a sign saying, take 30% off. But I'm thinking, you take it off. <laughs> so Let me just say this, the negative to England is they're less in touch with narcissism, because they're less narcissistic than us. And a lot of my actors joke about being narcissists. So they don't quite get it, maybe, the absurdity but in some ways they do get it because they know americans are known for narcissism. Mm-hmm. so but also the negative thing is they don't express themselves quite as with such big laughs as americans and they don't
0: they just go, oh, honest, yes like, indeed <laughs> right and so mm, quite so um i want to i want to take issue with something you said or at least disagree um which i guess is the same thing as take issue um you said you have nothing against comics that please everybody, I'm going to quarrel with you a little bit on that. I, I think I do have something against comics that please everybody. I think if you please, ev- I mean, maybe, maybe it's possible to please everybody and be interesting and unique, but I think in general it is not. I think comics that are truly interesting and unique, they might please a lot of people, but I I've seen I saw the late Mitch uh, uh, Hedberg bomb many a time, right here in New York City, right here at the Comedy Cellar, um, and 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 he was known for that. Like you'd hear stories like, yeah, Mitch he bombed here, he bombed there. Um, you know, David Tell usually kills. That's true. He usually does kill. But there's also people that are like, no, you know, Jim. The comics that I like to watch, Jim Norton, who's out there talking about. You know, transsexuals, There's going to be people that are offended by that, um, about his love for transsexuals, I should say. So I think, in general, I think in general, if you please everybody, I don't think that's good. John, what do you say?
2: Um, I've heard that, and uh, yes, it is, you're saying if, if you're pleasing everyone, you're just going down the middle, it's milk toast. I,
0: I think you're probably not that unique or interesting. Right, right,
2: yeah. Um, sure. Yeah, the goal is to be totally yourself and hope that enough people identify with that and you create a following. So in essence, everybody in the audience likes you. So what do you think about that? I mean, your goal is to be different enough to get enough people to come to your shows. Right. Like if, like if you. if
0: you please everybody, you, you no one's if if everybody likes you, probably no one's going to love you. You know what I mean? Like, if everybody, you know what I'm saying? If everybody likes you, there's probably no one's going to be like, oh, my God. Then no one's going to worship you. No one's going to think that what you're saying is profound. And I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe that's not a universal. But I think Pearl shaking her her duckbill face because she's wearing the mask. So she looks like a duck.
3: I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like Dave Chappelle. I mean, people love him. I'm not saying people
0: don't love him. But is everybody going to love him? Is he gonna go on a cruise
3: ship and kill there? Probably, but uh, until like four in the morning, also. But <laughs> also, I mean, I don't is he, know. Is I, he gonna kill
0: in front of Jim Gaffigan's crowd, and is Jim Gaffigan gonna kill in front of his crowd, in front of Chappelle's crowd? That's an interesting. I don't know. Point.
2: You know. Um, also, it's not a it's not a good um, comparison when you're talking about people that already are famous because they get that benefit of the doubt as well. Well,
0: they also get their As Al, you said this in the documentary. Famous people get people that come to see them. So the audience already loves them. You and I get whoever's there. <laughs> so you were making the you know what I'm saying? Sir?
1: Right, but let me just say this. I don't know, but I don't know if the goal should be to be so different and the goal is to be different. I'm not I think saying the that's goal, the goal, but be, I'm saying the comics no. that I,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: The goal is to be yourself. And what if you you yourself are an uh, every like a person just like a normal person, you know, that uh, I don't think you should force it to be so different because then it's not you anymore. But I don't I, I think, think if you're normal, yourself, I right? think you have to be
3: comedy. What's that? If you're that normal, you're probably not doing stand up comedy.
0: Yeah, I don't think you should be normal in this business.
3: I mean, I don't think I can't think of anyone who's yeah. like, yeah. You know,
1: but I don't know, maybe you guys, are you guys being prejudiced against normal people? I mean, No, no, <laughs> normal
0: people have their place, but gonna, it's not pre- here.
1: What you're going to do is you're going to incite a whole prejudice against normal people. You're going to make normal people incredibly neurotic, and then they'll have a unique act.
0: <laughs> that would be ironic. But we're not prejudiced <laughs> against normal people. We just feel that they have their place,
1: and they, there
0: are many wonderful things that they bring to the table.
1: But how, do, how can you say point blank that normal people have, don't have a good sense of humor?
0: Well, they might have a good sense of humor, but I mean to be a comedian i I, I don't know you know um, I think you'd have a I think you'd have a hell of a time being a, an effective comedian if you were normal
1: right well but maybe I that mean, would at make, least, at least the comedian even better because they have this huge challenge being normal they have to become even better, so they become an unbelievable normal comedian. well can you, can, you, can you
0: name an example of that one?
2: <laughs> well, I don't know him well, but you can think about people that are, you know, um, w- we look at our specific lives sometimes as not so normal. Other comics might look at the world, the chaos of the world, like a Hassan Minhaj, right? He's, I don't know him well, but he seems fairly Normal, but he's looking at the world and he's commenting on the world as opposed. Well, to then
0: his. He, his abnormality might be in the way he sees things or in his insightfulness. Yes, so that that could be an abnormality if you're incredibly. In, insi- I don't. I haven't seen him in a while. I don't. I'm not that familiar with his work, but. Um,
3: Here's the thing. I think, I think that all of you, and maybe not so much you, John, have a really warped sense of success because you're so inside of it. So, like, this idea of, like, being afraid of being successful. And you, you and I have talked about this before, Dan. That I mean, people who aren't successful don't have documentaries made about them, Mr. Lubell. Well, sure they do. No, they, they don't. I mean, people who aren't, like, fascinating. Fascinating, or, yes.
0: Fascinating, yes. But but.
3: Or, I mean, they don't have people like, as you mentioned, I mean, There have been
0: be documentaries made about serial killers. Are they successful people? Well, I mean,
3: yeah, if you're a serial killer, you by definition. I guess uh, they're successful in, in, their, <laughs> their, in, field, in their field. In their but, field. But. Um, and this, just by being a serial killer, right? You have to have killed, I mean, over, I think, 10 people. So you're doing really well.
2: I think it's harder to be a successful comedian or a successful serial killer.
3: Somebody has a joke
2: Well, about successful,
0: that. meaning you never got caught, that's probably very difficult. But um, Although I'm told serial killers often want to get caught. But anyway, so Periel, you look at Al Lubel as successful.
3: Of course. I mean, he's had an amazing career by like any standard. We, we just had this conversation recently, and you said that the nature of human beings is that they're always looking up. Right. When I've said your career is incredible, like by a standard of success in comedy. And you said, no, 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 I thought it was going to be this. And I thought it was going to be that. And I'm always looking up because that's the nature of human beings. You don't pay attention to what's down there. Well, that, that, that's
1: true, you know,
3: right. Uh, but you I'm trying to give you guys a little bit of perspective. Yeah,
1: but it's true. But there is such a huge level between you know, thank you for saying that, but you know, I don't, again, I don't even know if I want something like superstardom, but there's such a huge level between the superstar comedians. Sure. And me and, and, you know, and Dan and, and John, you know, no offense to throw, well, you guys, it was kind of saying, but anyway, my point is, is the superstar comedians and there's the star comedians below them. And, you know, there's a huge difference between sure. that. And so it does weigh on your mind a little, you know, but, uh, Again, I'm not that, you know, I am upset. Half of me is upset and the other half is but you not. you know that
3: people are looking at you and being like, holy shit, this guy did Leno and Letterman and Carson. And that's like a huge mark of like a dream for
1: people. Thank you. That's very nice to But you know, what? I'll be on Again, I shouldn't say I'll be honest because that implies this whole time up to now. <laughs> 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 you finally broke me down.
3: <laughs> I'm going to be honest. That's what I'm here for.
1: Right. But honestly, I know, I know I'm know, i pretty well sure because I could tell I've been working harder lately and it's only because I'm getting older and I know the end's coming, you know? So I know if I had worked, I know I didn't work my hardest the first 35 years I've been doing. I know it because I was afraid. I didn't want it. I was afraid to make it. I was afraid. Maybe I was also afraid to try my hardest and fail. Oh my God, that, you know, who knows? But whatever the fears were, I did not come close to my hardest. Now, let me also say this. I did work damn hard when I got ready for the first Tonight Show because it was a big moment. I couldn't have worked harder. But could I have been a more emotionally grown up? Yes, I wasn't. I was still a child, so I'd only let myself work so hard because I was emotionally a child. And also, I didn't have the relationships you might want. And I don't know. I didn't... Whatever a child like me could put in for 100%, I did. But the first, you know, Leno, I worked my ass off. The first Letterman, I worked my ass off. But, again... uh, but then only f- when I had, like, big things I had to prepare for. But when I didn't have a big thing, I wouldn't work. You know, Where I was 100% committed to fame and stardom. I think they consistently work, whether they had a big deadline or not. Well, I don't. Uh, sorry. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I,
0: I read somewhere, some article that said, you know, we, we typically think that people succeed because they work hard, but actually people work hard because they succeed. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but I, I think there's some truth to it. Yes. I think when you're encouraged, you're point. told, we're going to give you a, a, a sitcom, but you've got to show up every day and work yeah. the whole day and memorize your life. You would have done that if somebody yeah. had said to you, you know, we're going to give you a special on Netflix, but you've got to come up with the hour. You would have probably come up with it. So right. I think pe- that
2: also reminds sorry to interrupt. Yeah, go ahead. The, this reminds me, this conversation about that book, The Four Tendencies, that I think we talked about before, Peril, uh, where certain people are motivated by external versus internal um, factors. And it sounds like, uh, much like myself, Al, you less so with the internal, more the external. Like, you have a Tonight Show set, you're gonna get ready for it. But, but I,
0: I do yeah. think, I, I think th- that everybody responds to encouragement. You know, if you've written several screenplays and none of them sold, you're less likely to write another screenplay. But if your first screenplay or your second screenplay did sell, there's a better chance you're going to write a third and a fourth. So but again, that's
2: a certain, certain people. Well, I there think others. everybody
0: it responds to that. Now, there might be people that can just keep beating their head against a wall <laughs> uh, and, and with no results, but I'm just going to go take a nap, you know, after a certain point. It's like, you know, so I'm with Al. Uh, no, there, fuck Yeah, if yeah I, had, and
1: I remember Dan, I don't know if you remember saying this to me. I was working on a, one man show at Stand Up New York, that theater upstairs, you know, back in like 2009. And yeah, I, remember I remember that
0: the show was emotionally, I was wiped out after seeing that show. I think
1: you told me about that. Yeah, I'm fact, mostly said, drained. You know, I, in fact, I remember halfway through my show, I started talking about the fact that my mother wiped me yeah. until I was 12. Right. Did right. I tell you? Yeah, yeah, I you, remember that. You, by the way, is that mentioned in the doc? That's bio? in the doc, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, so it's already out there, huh? No. <laughs> anyway, no. But my point is, I remember I brought that up in the one-man show. There's only 15 people in the crowd. Dan's in the crowd. I bring that. I, you know, I hear from Dan. Oh no!
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't remember that, but it could certainly could be. Not could be. Was. Okay. I remember. It, you know, and it didn't. I just thought. Yeah. Oh no! You just I like couldn't. That was that broke it for you. I guess like you know, like you. So I can relate what you're saying. You probably were like I can't believe. And then the white needle twelve got. Me. But anyway, my <laughs> my what point is. is what age? Well, well he's, he's, he's in the middle of a point. Oh, no, my little point was that uh, very nice of them at Stand at New York. He let me use. I don't know if I should. I did his, my one man show in his theater that next door to the. Stand Up New York in 2009 and 10, and I ran into you outside the show. You didn't come to that one man show. You came to my one man show in the early 2000s, like, I think. So. But anyway, that show, you happened to just be outside, I and mean, you may have been doing a stand up spot at Stand Up New York. I ran into you outside. I remember you said to me, Al, and at that point I was getting no spots, mm-hmm. you know, anywhere in the city. So I just said, screw it, I'm just doing my own one man show every week at this theater. So I, I stopped doing stand up for like four or five months, right? Anyway, I remember you said to me, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, Dan. You said. We, when you said we meant your fellow comics, we don't think you've been treated fairly by the community, the stand-up comedy community. And I felt that was, I was good to hear that. Like you were kind of telling me, and again, maybe I'm wrong. The implication was I didn't get what I was due. That was your phrase. You didn't get what you were due based on how good you were as a comic. You didn't get what you were due. Do you remember saying that?
0: I don't remember saying that. I said that about myself. I also uh, asked you to put
1: it in writing and you did. So I will. <laughs> No, well, I
0: tend to think that, you know, you, you said in the documentary, no one's do anything. and You're perfectly right. Right. You know, except I do tend to think that way in my <laughs> in my in my more angry moments that, you know, but. Is
1: it?
2: But I wanted to because I just wanted to say, well, first of all, I just want to say I would always stay in the room when you were on stage. I, I loved love watching you when you were in New York City. I don't get to see you obviously now, but. I always love watching you. You're so funny. Oh, um, thank you very much. Thank my you. one question that I want to ask before I had to have to run is though uh, you're talking about half of you like you know wanting success and half of you not. Do you want to work on that half that doesn't, or you like this struggle, or do you know like my mom is afraid of cats, but she's never gonna go deal with it. She's just resigned to being like that's how I will live my life, afraid of cats. Do you want to live your life with half of you pulling you one way and half of you pulling yourself the other? No
1: I, as I, no, I I do want to work on that fearful part because only because I'm getting to the end here and I do want to experience other things and I don't, I don't want to die without having tried harder.
0: Well, your mother lived till 95. By the way, condolences because she did, did it know. said at the end of the Thank documentary you. that she had passed. Um, but she was 95.
1: I know and I do think that sometimes. I have a lot more years to not do it. So genetically,
0: genetically speaking, you, you may ultimately, uh, even if you don't out-succeed your fellow comedians, you might outlive them, you know, if, that's, if that's any that's, consolation. You might that's also live fantastic. to pee on their graves. I don't know if that's any-
1: That's true, but Dan, you haven't, you haven't thought enough. But Dan, you have not thought enough about me. Have you thought about when my father died? No, I, 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 I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. You've
0: already cleared that barrier.
1: He, he died. Yeah, I've cleared. That's a good point. But yeah, he died at 60. But, at, you know, um, you have to kind of average the genetics in me well, somewhere. You get most of your health from your mother. But what did I he, die of? Well, what what did he ahead, die of? What did he die of? He had, he had bladder cancer when he was like 55, but he died of a stroke at 60. And they said that it, the doctor said it may have very well been related to the chemo. So I don't know if it was related to that or just he had a regular stroke.
0: But the, the, did he have any risk factors for bladder cancer that you don't have? Uh, smoking? Yeah, he, was big,
1: he was a big smoker until okay. he was 30. Okay,
0: he was a big smoker. So that might be yes. the reason. true. Now, how, how long did his parents live?
1: Yeah, his father lived to like 105. Okay. And But his mother died at like, eight. I think she had a stroke at 78 and died at like 83. So it's mixed. It's all mixed.
0: Well, it seems to me, and when you go to the doctor, are, are all the... The blood pressure and the, all the numbers what the cholesterol is, is, is everything
1: there? in the green is everything where it should be yeah actually the doctor said to me he was like i have i, I need nothing no statins none he said you i he's my he's a, he's like my age and he said i'm jealous you're way healthier than us so, so so there you have it i think
0: we, we the conclusion is is that indeed you've you've inherited your mother's uh, health and 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 could go to 95 and beyond
2: yeah, True, and I, ex-lawyers. Not, I this also like two ex lawyers. Sounds like two ex doctors talking. <laughs> but I, I could I also do my own research, John, <laughs>
0: which people talk about these days.
1: But I could also die with incredibly good numbers.
0: You well, anything could happen, but I,
1: I think <laughs> Thanks,
0: you John. Know, I, I think that uh, by the way, Nicole, are you there? I don't know if you want to stop and join us. I don't know if you've been listening and if you if you if, if you find this how are you, how are you finding this conversation?
2: This is
3: really interesting. I mean, even for the aforementioned normal people, I hmm. feel like that feeling of resisting success is so common, even with, like, if you get a new opportunity or a new relationship, you kind of naturally sabotage that.
0: And I, by the way, I write about that in my book, Iris Spiro Before COVID, available on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Let's, get those, let's get to number one, guys. <laughs> we can do it.
1: <laughs>
0: we, can, we can have the number one book on, uh, on Amazon.
3: I, I have a question. I didn't mean to interrupt earlier. No, yeah, go ahead. Um, what, what age are you supposed to stop wiping your child's butt? At? I would
0: assume well before 12.
3: Yeah, well before 12, sure.
1: I checked into it. I think it's something like three or something.
0: That, that sounds about right. About three. Um, I
3: don't know any three or four year olds that wipe their own butts.
0: Well, it's certainly not 12. That we can agree.
3: No, no, no. 100%. I mean, not 12.
0: You know, you shouldn't be you know, doing algebra homework after your mother wipes your ass.
3: I, I agree. I mean, were you wiping your own butt when you were four years old? I don't recall.
0: My memories of being four are rather vague. I remembered a flight I took to St. Thomas, <laughs> but I don't recall who wiped my ass,
1: you know, you were, you, during, you,
0: during my trip there. What's that?
1: Oh, you're joking. You mean like that you were a pilot? You mean, no, are no, you talking I, about- we, uh,
0: No, <laughs> I, I, I went on a family trip to St. Thomas. That's one of my earliest memories is okay. my first flight W- which was like 1973 after the big ice storm that year. Cause my mother's like, she'd had it with bad weather. So we went to St. Thomas.
1: Well, this, you know, if you really try to pry your memory open on that, it could help, you know, because do you have any memories of using the toilet on the plane? Because it's hard to they get your mother to wipe your butt on, to fit her in the toilet on the plane. So you might have a distinct memory of wiping your own butt on the plane.
0: I, I don't though. And, 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 um, I can only say that I I was well before 12 when I stopped, uh, when I was able if you
1: you had to really guess.
0: You know, I went to summer camp, Al, when I was sleepaway, when I was 10. And uh, so I didn't hold it in for six weeks.
3: All right, so definitely So
0: unless the counselor did it.
3: No, the counselor- I'm pretty
0: sure I did it myself.
3: So definitely 10.
0: No, I think it was four or three. It was probably in that area.
1: Well, that's- okay you know what's interesting is i went to sleepaway camp too i was not ready to do it like i, I remember i was uh what was i i was 11 and i only went because my neighbors lisa and jill went and lisa was a year younger than me and joe was four years younger than me and i was like my pride was injured that these girls that are younger than me are going i have to go too and i was not ready to go because when i went there i started crying like a lunatic i was so scared and i never heard cursing before i guess i remember i never heard curse. I, they, the, the bunk, the boys in the bunk were cursing. I was terrified. I started crying like such a lunatic. My parents came, I demanded they come and take me home. So, uh, they did Well, I, I'm cutting the story. I don't want to make too long a story. They, they, my father said, stick it out, be a man, be a man. So I tried to be man. I lasted one more day. And then I cried again and they came and he said, he took me back. Anyway, I, I two years later, I went, the bottom line is I was a bedwetter until I was 14. Okay. And every morning I would uh, change my sheets in the morning and I put them out to hang dry. So no one would know I was a bedwetter, but my parents came halfway up there. Halfway when I was there, they came, took me to a hotel for one night, uh, halfway through the bed, uh, the sleepaway camp thing. And I forgot to change the sheets. And when I came back, someone tried to sleep in my bed and they all found out I was a bedwetter. It was devastating. I was 14. But luckily that stopped me from bedwetting the humiliation of them catching me was yeah, the, I, I was didn't know humiliation
0: act. was a cure for bedwetting.
1: Yeah, yeah, for me it was, so I was 14, so- right, well,
0: Let's clarify, um, you, you, you didn't wipe your ass, you wipe, your mother wiped your ass at 12, but you could, you probably, it wasn't every time you wipe, sometimes it was you.
1: I yeah, I have no memory, but I must've wiped my own ass sometimes. You're right, because I was in sleepaway camp when i was 13 or even that 10 o'clock you know when i was 10 10 years old in sleepaway camp 11. i must have wiped my ass those two nights i was there uh, By the way, i'm
0: reading an article that that sheknows.com i'm reading an article that Periel just handed me online now of course you can read everything online but it says here don't stress if you're still wiping your child's bottom when they're six eight ten or twelve but do them and yourself a favor and take the time to teach them how to do it themselves well uh Okay. I, you know, I mean,
3: we need to verify, but I, I don't know where plan. you.
0: there's also places online where the Jews, you know, uh, control the weather. So I don't know that that's <laughs> valid just because you read it, but we can research that further. And,
1: um, you know, I, I do want to say, what was I going to say about it? The only, I'm really grateful for the, I kind of tell it as a joke, a little in my act, but I, I have a feeling I gave in to my mother and started wiping myself. I enjoyed the forcing her to do it thing. You know, like the I didn't well, part you're like of Stewart it.
0: from Family Guy. Stewart. I never watched
1: it. I don't watch. No, watch
0: Stewie was like very demanding that, that that they wipe his ass.
3: Did okay. you have siblings?
1: No, only child. Same. So it was kind of like a say uh, sadomasochistic relationship with my mother, you know, like uh, trying to give give her she called me a brat. I give her pain and, you know, I enjoyed giving her pain and I enjoyed making her laugh from the pain or whatever. But Uh, I think the bar mitzvah is what actually got me stopping demanding it. I was actually, again, humiliation. I was I felt humiliated, like going in for a bar mitzvah and still having my mother wipe my ass. And I was actually thinking maybe the bar mitzvah evolved from that. Maybe people to try to get the Jewish boys to stop demanding. Who knows if they created the bar mitzvah just for that?
0: Well, I tend to doubt it, but it's possible. Nicole, what do you make of all this? Do you have any questions for Al before we go?
3: I don't think so. This has been great. I also as to as say our th-
0: podcast go, where would you rank it? Oh God,
3: <laughs> uh, on a scale of one to ten. Well, t-
0: ten being our best podcast, one being our worst.
3: I feel We're, pretty good about this one. I feel like this is maybe an eight. Which which one was a ten? Um, hmm. I have to check the archives on that one. Which one was a one? Don't say that on air. <laughs> I just also want to say that the title of the documentary is just brilliant. I don't know. Um, who came up with that, but it's so, so good mentally. Al.
1: Thank you. Well, let me say to my friend, Tim Rose uh, came uh, and also Josh Edelman, the director. Josh said he thought Josh, the director was I played Remember the New York Comedy Club. Had, you ever play it in Boca Raton, Dan? Yeah, I used I used to do. Yeah. yeah, that's where Josh ended up seeing me. And I must also thank Josh for doing a great job in this documentary. I thought he did a great job. But anyway, my point is, he saw me as a high school student. And really liked me at that club in like 2004. And he wanted to do a documentary on me then. And I didn't want anyone doing one on me then. I was writing a screenplay, which I finished, but still haven't done anything with. But I thought the documentary could interfere with my screenplay about me, if there's a documentary about me, whatever. Then he read. So he, had the, he said he had the title when he was in high school. But wow. then my friend Tim Rhodes gave me the title. I didn't know about that. Tim Rose gave me the title back in 2013 when I did Edinburgh. So Tim Rhodes thought of it on his own too. So uh, I must thank those people for those. I would have
0: it. called it Al's Well that ends well.
1: <laughs> yes, that's uh, and, I, and I actually I don't know if Al's going to be well based on that title.
0: <laughs> I would have called it Al's Quiet on the Western Front.
1: Right. So yeah. so
0: so that's,
1: so um. That's a great. That, that's a great title too because I am quiet on the west. I'm here in L.A. in the west. Yeah. And I'm not getting many spots, and I'm being quiet. Well, let me just say, so this. why did
0: you move? Well, we have to go in just a second, but if you yeah. could just bring us up to date on where you're at, you moved. Why did you move back to L.A. from England? You you, you were doing well. in by England. the way,
1: I like the way you used we here because we literally means we in this situation as opposed to other people say, let's make us, let's make this pot, let's make this a great, we're going to do it, mm-hmm, right? I'm doing a callback to your job. Oh yeah,
0: okay. <laughs>
1: but I feel, let me just say, I feel, yeah, I should be happy with the eight out of the 10. I want to thank Nicole. Yeah. But part of me feels I didn't do my job to make this a 10 out of a 10. And part of me feels bad that I'm caffeinated. I wonder if my caffeinated state can- Well, I'm re-
0: Al, you're the guest. I feel responsible because I'm the ship's captain and I didn't uh, perhaps uh, do my job if Nicole only thinks of us as an eight. But I would say to our listeners, you know, you, you write in at podcast at com and, and give us your number. But before before we go, Al, so, so just can you just briefly, quickly tell us where things are at now you're in LA and, and how is things, how, how are things going?
1: Well, things are going pretty well. I did uh, Josh put a uh, show on, you know, the improv lab, there's a little room next to the main room at the improv called the improv lab. And so Josh opened for me there Saturday it was Josh, uh, Josh, the director of the documentary. Adam. He's also a standup, yeah. Josh. Opened. Oh, okay. Okay. So he sold the room out on Saturday. So it was a good feeling to, uh, to uh, play that room. I'm starting to get some more spots around town here in L.A. Uh, so I'm happy with that. Uh, you know, I've had this movie that I've written. You know, it's a it's a uh, what do you call it? A uh, It's based on me, but it's a, you know, a, a fictional story. But uh, I'd like to get it made. It's meant to be made in L.A., but I still haven't done it. I'm procrastinating. You know, I've had it written for 20 years and I've you know, a hundred different versions. you know, that's a good film, but, you know, I get, I don't get, I don't want to sell it to studios cause I don't want them to change it. You
0: are know? you, are you, uh, do you have a day job now you were working for Lyft? I don't know if you're still doing
1: Right. I was, uh, working. Yeah, no, luckily I'm getting by, uh, on my own here. Uh, I have some stuff playing on Sirius radio, which is very good. Thing. Oh, Okay. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm getting by with some work and, you know, and, uh, so yeah, I'm getting by and, uh, I'm, you know, part of me thinks maybe I'll go back to England because I really feel I improved a lot in England. You know, I was getting more stage time there. And uh, I think just living in another country woke me up as a human being. I became a little more of a human being. I felt a little more self esteem because I was thinking, even if I'm not getting work here in England, I'm accomplishing the fact that I'm living on a loan in a foreign country. I had self esteem just from doing that. And that made me, I think, a better person a little and maybe improved my comedy a little. So. But I think I'd still like to give it a little more shot here. And I think I'm also thinking of coming out to New York, you know, well, uh, part, yeah. I'm sorry, but there's a part of me that doesn't like living too close to where I grew up. I grew up in Queens. So part of me, I think my low self-esteem is triggering that if I live close to where I grew up, I didn't really do anything. you know, so that triggers my low self-esteem. So I don't know. Well,
0: we'd love to have you here, obviously, but that's your decision to make. We have to go now. Mentally Al's available on YouTube, Amazon prime and other platforms. Just, Google Mentally Al. You won't have a hard time finding it. I give it my wholehearted recommendation as well worth the $3.99, and, and, and I would even have paid more for it and and uh, without regret. Uh, my book, Iris Spiro Before COVID, is available on Amazon, uh, $4.99 on Kindle, $14.99. The paperback, um, Perry L's books, uh, The Only Bush I Trust is My Own, and On My Knees are available similarly on Amazon. And you can check those out as well. Podcast at ComedySeller.com for all your comments and suggestions. Al, great seeing you. Hopefully we'll see you back in New York. Give me a Hit me up when you're in, in town if you come back.
1: Okay, will do. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for okay. me.
0: Bye-bye, everybody. See you next time. Good night. Okay.
3: Okay.